Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 69, the last little section of chapter 26. Matthew 26, starting in verse 69. Some of you may remember the devastation that was Hurricane Katrina. One of the maybe lesser known stories that was published in Christianity Today was about a prominent, well-known Christian author and speaker named Brennan Manning. You may or may not have heard of some of his writings. He has some best-selling books on the Christian faith. And while he was living in New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina, he stayed there throughout the storm and after the storm. So Christianity Today wanted to get some on-the-ground, inside perspective regarding how things were going from this prominent Christian leader. And he started sharing not only of the devastation, but of his efforts to help. In the story, he shares about how he helped a lost child get reconciled and found with uh, reuniting this child to their family, helping an old lady out of her destroyed home or apartment, and et cetera, et cetera. One of the reasons why I'm bringing this up to you is because the story that was then published in Christianity Today had a second edition with an editor's note above it, and it said that shortly after this story went to the press, Brennan Manning left a voicemail to Christianity Today saying that during the season of Hurricane Katrina, he was depressed, confused, and distraught. That he was not a hero, that in fact everything that he said about helping a lost child find his parents and helping an old lady out of a home was all a lie. How do you make sense of that? How do you make sense of a prominent Christian, strong leader of the church at the end of his life telling a big lie? Well, we want to try and make sense of that and much, much more in today's message. Let's read the text, Matthew chapter 26. Verses 69 and following. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said, to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately, the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. 
Today's big idea of this passage is a big question. How will you and I stand when we are under trial? Big question. One simple question. How will you and I stand when we are under trial? That's where we want to ultimately get to. In the same way that Peter has a series of three statements, questions, accusations being made to him, I have three questions for us. And the last one will be, how will we stand? Question number one, how did Peter stand? Because he was under a kind of trial. How did he fare? That's question one. Question two, how will Peter stand after this terrible, miserable failure? How could he possibly stand again? The passage ends with him weeping bitterly. And many of you probably already know that the story doesn't end there. So how can he possibly stand? Which then leads to question three. What can we learn about Peter so that we can stand when we're under trial? So that's the one big question. How will you and I stand when we are under trial? Because surely, I think as we look through this passage, we will see that Peter is under a kind of trial himself. And as you know too well from reading this story, he does not fare too well. So how can you stand again? How does Peter? First, how did he do when Peter was under trial? Asked three questions. Well, it's bad. I don't really need to tell you that by diving into details. You kind of know just reading it. This is an easy point to make. He, he does poorly. But when you do dive into the details, you realize, oh, he did far worse than what just appears on the surface. First, you noticed that Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, the courtyard of the high priest. Look back at verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, and where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. So where's G- where is Peter? He's in the courtyard of a high priest while Jesus is on trial. Well, Peter's on his own kind of trial. And he has a servant girl. The language of this servant girl is actually like this little girl, maybe young girl, but easily the emphasis should be she's insignificant. She's a nobody. We don't even know her name. A servant girl comes and is just one. I want you to notice that in the series of these three steps of Peter's trial, there is a progression. A little unknown servant girl, all by herself, points out and says, Hey, hey, you you were with Jesus, the Galilean. And the first language that Matthew gives is that he denied it before them. He said, "I I don't know what you mean. Then it gets deeper, verse 71, and then when he came out to the entrance, so notice he's from the courtyard, now he's by the gate of the courtyard, and another servant girl saw him and then said to some more people, now we've got a bunch of bystanders, not just one person, but now more people, and now we're at the gate. This man was with Jesus of Nazareth, and again he denied it, and notice how we're getting more intense. With an oath, 
Anybody remember what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 5 about saying oaths? Yeah, don't do it. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And so he says, with an oath, not just, I don't know what you're talking about. He says, I swear I don't know this man. It's, it's more emphatic. And it doesn't end there. Verse 73, after a little while, the bystanders came up to Peter and said, no, 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 certainly you are one of them. Your accent betrays you. By this, they mean a northern Galilean accent, not Judean southern accent. So this would be like you're in New York City and somebody from Alabama comes up. It's like, whoa, we know where you're from. Somebody comes over from England. You're like, okay, you're not from around here. That's what they're saying. No, no, you're, you're from Galilee. Certainly you at least know this guy. This is one of the most famous people that's been in Galilee recently. Jesus, Nazareth. Nazareth is just outside of Galilee. And then, here's where the details of the text are actually unhelpful in the English Standard Version or the NIV Version. And I hate to do this because every once in a while it makes you feel like, oh, I can't trust my own Bible. But generally, 99% of the time you can trust your Bible. But in this little detail, I think that the interpreters have added something that's not there. And it really probably doesn't make the best sense of it. Verse 74, then he began to invoke a curse. And then that should have just been it. There's no on himself in the original grammar of this text. Matches what Mark says in Mark chapter 14 as well. And he invoked a curse. If you want to know the grammar, it's a transitive verb. It's not a reflexive verb. What does that mean? It just means that it's not attached to a pronoun. If it would have been a reflexive verb, then it would have been said he he, he evoked a curse on himself. In other words, the translators are trying to make Peter look better than he actually does. It's just, and then he invoked a curse. Then he anathematized, if you want me to kind of spell it out. That's what it says. He anathematized. He anathematized who? And really, almost every scholar that I've been reading and studying is just saying like, well, what makes the most sense of the context? Do you see the progression and the intensity? Who's he going to curse? He went from, I don't know what you're talking about, to, I swear I don't know this man, to, no, I curse Jesus. I think that's the best way to read it. So like I said, you could have got that without the Greek lesson, right? He doesn't fare so well. What was the question? How does Peter stand when he is under trial? Not so good. And the more you study the details, yeah, it's really, really bad. He denies, he swears, he curses. There's an ironic truth in his lie. By saying that he did not know Jesus or know what they're talking about, he was showing that he really did not know Jesus deep down in his own heart. Not only do Peter's answers move him further away from Jesus relationally, as he betrays and stabs his friend, his his leader, his master, in the back with these words. Geographically, the story is told in such a way that he's in the courtyard, he's in the gate, and then now he's outside. He's moving through this story further and further away from Jesus by every word that he says and by every step that he takes. Peter, the greatest Christian leader of the early church, Jesus' most committed and passionate follower, Peter, did not stand. He did not fare well. He cursed. He denied. 
And he swore an oath that he did not know Jesus when Jesus needed him the most. How do you make sense of this? This is far worse than what Brennan Manning did. Two lessons for us, I think, that we can take just from this first question and point. Peter does not fare well under trial. Lesson one, by looking at when Peter cursed Jesus, when he cursed Jesus, we should remember that it was Peter who was the one who said, I will not be like the rest of those disciples, Jesus. I won't deny you. Do you remember that? That was not too far ago. It was hours in the story. It was just a few paragraphs up in Matthew 26 when they're seated around that table at the Last Supper with Jesus. And Jesus predicts, you guys are going to betray me. You're going to deny me. And Jesus calls Peter out and says, no, before the rooster crows, you will deny me. He says, no, 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 I will die for you, Jesus. And in some ways, I think that Peter if you want to give him somewhat of a benefit of doubt, is really trying to follow through with that commitment that he said in that upper room. Why? Well, because think about it from this standpoint. They go out to the garden, and yes, he falls asleep like all the other disciples, so not so good. But when the arrest comes, who's the one that we know that's standing up for Jesus and willing to die and draws out a sword? Peter. I think he's being true to his word. I'll die for you, Jesus. When the trial gets intense and tough, when there's a big army coming, Peter's ready to die. And then, when all the other disciples desert desert Jesus, leave and flee after Jesus' arrest, there's one disciple who at least follows along you got to imagine that he's thinking about what he just said and about Jesus' prediction, like, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to stick around. I'm going to stay with them. I'm going to follow along, even from a distance. Peter defends Jesus in the garden. He won't run away when everybody else does. But here, when a little servant girl in a very ordinary, no-name, eh, somebody comes up and says, I think you were with Jesus. I, 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 you look familiar. Your, your accent, it gives you away. Several different commentators point out this lesson for us. Oftentimes, it's going to be in the ordinary, everyday, no-name situations, not when the stakes are the biggest, that we wilt and we crumble and we deny Jesus. Perhaps it's not when the army comes or when Jesus is arrested But it's when a little servant girl asks a question, makes a statement, that you and I find ourselves in a very similar position of the ordinary, everyday, humdrum days of our lives and denying Jesus ourselves. I think we can learn from this. Even though Peter seems to try and fulfill his promise to stay with Jesus to the end, it's really in the most unassuming situations that he denies. Lesson two, remember it's Peter. Peter. Peter denies Jesus. Peter. What did I say he was? The greatest leader of the early church. One of the inner circle of the three disciples that Jesus seemed to spend the most time with. Peter, James, and John. The most outspoken. The one who got the answer right in Matthew chapter 16. Who do people say that I am? Peter speaks up. The most passionate, committed, I will die for you, Peter. In other words, 
Some of Jesus' greatest teachers, most committed and passionate followers, will wilt under the most simple and basic things that are going on in their lives and deny him. So how do you make sense of Brennan Manning? I don't think that it's too difficult to make sense of it if we have this passage of Scripture. Christian leaders, the greatest of them, the ones closest to Jesus, the ones that you would think of all people, they would be the ones that wouldn't fail. Is this relevant to any of you in here? Do I need to maybe say Ravi Zacharias, Bill Hybels, James McDonald, or go on and on and say these are the sort of people that many of you have been hurt by in this congregation Talk about relevance. We need to hear this passage of scripture precisely because Christian leaders that many of you have put your trust and hope to follow and listen to, and you would have thought, oh, they'll never let me down, have actually let you down. And here I am, seven years into pastoring this church, and it does not go by another week or month or year where some of you either have come from churches in this area or have been around these leaders and are still dealing with the pain of that hurt. We need to hear this lesson because it is extremely important that not one leader in this church or any church or any human person gets your full trust. Pastor Phil will let you down. I probably won't respond as quickly as I should. I'll probably get distracted and not be there when you needed me. I could go on and on. I'm praying and hoping that I will not completely forego the faith. But it's the moment that you think that you will never do that, that you are opening yourself up to the very thing that you hope you will never do. So I will never stand up here and say, well, you couldn't trust those other men, but trust me, not for a second. Do not put your trust in the men of the church. Put your trust in the Savior of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not Brennan Manning. It's not James McDonald. It's not Bill Hybels. It's not Ravi Zacharias. It's not even Mother Teresa. Did you guys know that Mother Teresa, right before she died, wanted all of her journals and writings burned because she was afraid that it would detract her followers and admirers from the real struggles that she had in her personal diary. You can read about them. Many people think she was just a fake because of how deep sometimes the discouragement and the depression was in her journal writings. The list could go on and on. The greatest of great followers of Jesus will let you down. Remember, they are not Jesus. They are followers of Jesus. And if Peter, in this trial, can't stand, then what hope is there for any of us? Why even go to church in the first place? Why be around a bunch of these hypocritical Christians? Why be discipled by any person at Embassy Church? That just seems silly. If they're going to let me down, I'm going to protect and preserve myself from that pain. It's inevitable. Pastor Phil, you just said it. Question two. Question one was, how did Peter fair when he was under trial? Not so good. Question two. How did Peter eventually stand after he failed so miserably? 
How is it that Peter became what was later in the New Testament authors one of the pillars of the truth? Why was he the one that became the Christian that gave the very first sermon in Acts chapter 2? How did he become a key leader for the Christian movement in the early church? Now, it would be very easy and nice to just jump out of Matthew and go right over into John's gospel. And some of you know the story quite well when Jesus restores Peter three times. It's beautiful. We don't even have to go there. There's evidence right here in front of us in Matthew 26 that I think will help us answer this question. How did Peter become the pillar of the truth? So just make two simple observations about the story that's right in front of us. Observation number one, the history of this story. The historicity of this story. What do I mean by that? The fact that it's true. The fact that I just read it. The fact that you know about it. How do you know about Peter's denial of Jesus? Where did that story come from? Think someone made it up? Why would you make this up? I want you to think about you're an early Christian. And there's a, there's a theory out there that early Christians wanted to gain power, so they made up stories about Jesus, and they did so so that they could then become prominent leaders and then, you know, take over the world with power and force. This, this is what you come up with? This is what you make up if you're trying to have Peter become the leader of the church? No. I, I don't think that you need to have read a whole bunch of legends throughout the history of literature to realize that this is not the stuff of legends. You don't make this up if you're trying to convince people to follow Peter. Do you get the point? The only reason that this story exists in writing is because Peter told somebody about it. Because Peter says, I want people to know this story. And who would do that? Who in their right mind would fail so miserably and say, I want everybody to know about it, that 2,000 years later, a group of people in Palatine, in the suburbs of Chicago, are going to still be reading about my miserable failures. Who does that? You won't even share your miserable failures from this morning, will you? So to fail so miserably, so terribly, to curse Jesus, I want everybody to know that. So the historicity of this story is the first observation you should make. Peter wanted us to know that we had this story. Why would he do that? Unless he was restored and forgiven and that he being the biggest failure of all when Jesus needed him the most, the most outspoken, passionate follower of Jesus, ends up becoming the greatest leader, not because of his gusto, not because of his resume, but because of his ad, ad, absolute inadequacies, because of his failures. It was precisely because Peter failed so miserably that Jesus Christ exalted, humbled, restored and made him the leader that he was. Christian leaders in the church only have any worth if they understand how desperate they are for his grace. And if there's anybody that knows that, it's Peter. Now, there is a legend, and I only just want to make this in passing because I think it, it at least might illustrate something. So I don't think this is true. It's not in the Bible. But there's a legend that Peter, every time he heard a rooster crow, wept. And at least that might communicate the point I'm trying to say. Peter 
was restored. And we know he's restored because we have this story. That's the first observation. Second observation, much more powerful, I think, much more beautiful, is the artistry of this story. If the first observation is that we have this story, the fact that it exists, that's amazing. It shows Peter must have been restored. He's a different kind of man. I want you to know that story. The second observation is the way the story is told. It's beautiful. It's artistic. It's poetic. Look at the very first phrase. Verse 69, now. Better translation, again, not because now is inappropriate, but just to capture the sense. Meanwhile, it's a flashback. Now, while this was going on in the trial upstairs in Caiaphas's house, something else was going on at the very same time. What are you trying to do when you're a storyteller by saying, now, meanwhile? I think what Matthew's trying to do, it's the same thing that Mark was trying to do, is put these stories next to each other so you could see a comparison, and behold, it's quite a comparison. Let's walk through them. In the story right before this, Jesus is on trial, and Jesus is questioned in a series of three progressive questions. First, there's false witnesses. Second, there's witnesses that agree. Two witnesses say, ah, he said that he would destroy the temple, which was partially false and partially true. He mentioned the temple being destroyed, but not that he would destroy it. And then third, eventually, Caiaphas, the high priest, demands in the most intense possible way, come on, speak up, I adjure you. Tell us, are you the Christ? He was asked to swear. He was told to make an oath. And Jesus finally speaks up. And when he does so, he says that he is much more than just a Christ, a human ruler. He is a heavenly ruler the judge of the universe, the one who is seated at the Father's right hand in power, who will judge the living and the dead. That's who I am. They said, we don't need any more. He's just condemned himself. Blasphemy. Thank you, Jesus. That made that a whole lot easier. They move on to then spit on him, beat him up, and say, oh, if you're a prophet, then prophesy. Who hit you? And just as he's being mocked for being a false prophet, meanwhile, the prophecy he made just hours ago is coming true when he said, Peter will deny me before the rooster crows. I don't know if that doesn't give you little chills down your back. Like the storytelling is immense. Jesus was telling the truth and Peter was lying. Peter was wilting under the trial pressure while Jesus stood firm. Peter was moving further and further away while Jesus stood his ground. Peter was running his big mouth as he always does so he could get out of trouble and not die on a cross. Jesus was silent and then when he did open his mouth, it got him into trouble so that he would die on a cross. Peter, the guilty one, got away with everything. Nobody went and killed him. Jesus, the innocent one, being cursed by Peter, was persecuted and unjustly judged. Peter should have been the one cursed and hanging on the tree, but it was Jesus who was cursed and hanging on a tree. Peter should have been killed. Jesus was killed. Put the stories next to each other. How could Peter possibly stand after such miserable failure 
when he was in his trial? The only answer could be, when you put the stories right next to each other, it shows that when we wilt, when we fall, Jesus stands. Peter can only stand and be the leader of the Christian church because Jesus stood as things got more intense. False accusations, half-true accusations to just point blank, are you the Christ? Which leads us very naturally to question number three then, doesn't it? How will you and I stand when we are under trial? How are you going to deal with your guilt and your shame? How do you deal with criticism? How will we stand? And it's when you realize there's three trials, three courtrooms that are in this story. There's three questions. There's a progression of threes. There's three trials, three courtrooms. First, there's the trial that we just read about Peter, where Peter curses Jesus. Second, there's the trial that we said is a flashback. Meanwhile, while the trial of Jesus is going on, so it's trial number two, Jesus is in Caiaphas's house, and he is being tried, and he condemns himself. Peter curses Jesus, and Jesus condemns himself. He says the very evidence they need to make him guilty. Third trial. Third courtroom. The one that involves you and me. Do you know where that one is? I'm not making this one up. It's in the text. Last week's text. It's when Jesus speaks up. And he says, Am I the Christ? Well, those are your words, not mine. I might mean something different by that. But I am the one who will come, like Daniel 7 says, with the clouds of heaven, and I will be seated by the ancient of days when the books are opened and judgments are made. I am the one that Psalm 110.1 says that the Lord said to my Lord, until he puts all the enemies underneath his feet, he will sit at my right hand and they will bring judgment on all the nations. I'm that one. In other words, there's three trials between Jesus' trial, Peter's trial, and then the trial of all of the universe. And how are you going to stand with your miserable failures? Same way that Peter stood after his miserable failures. Not because Jesus stood in his place, that's true, but because Jesus is sitting at the Father's right hand. I don't know about you guys, but my guess is that that statement only got one amen because we don't understand the significance of having an advocate at the Father's right hand right now on our behalf, always interceding for us. Three or so years ago, I started doing some more schoolwork because, I don't know, I'm stupid. <laughs> I couldn't get enough of it. And as many of you might know, the schoolwork that I've been studying has been, what is the significance of Jesus not just dying on a cross for our sins or rising from the dead, but what is the significance of Jesus leaving earth? That seems counterintuitive. I'd kind of like Jesus to be right here in the front row and we could talk to him. Jesus, are we getting this right? How about you just take the, the stage, Jesus? That seems nice, but Jesus says something really strange at one point. He says, it would be better if I left. And that's when you say, I'm not following. 
And for the last three years, I've been trying to figure that one out. I'm not saying I've figured it out, but I will want to, as we conclude this message, give you one of the sweetest, most precious truths that I've been meditating on for the last three years regarding Jesus sitting at the Father's right hand right now in heaven. And it's this. Jesus is our defense attorney pleading our case to the Father. Now, before you make any amens or kind of wonder how this applies to me, I want you to think about it like this. This is probably, as Tim Keller, I was listening to him share all this, this is probably the way that I think a lot of us think about this concept, Jesus as our advocate, our defense attorney. It's like this, Father, it's Pastor Phil again. Will you be merciful to him? Yeah, he messed up again. You know, the tone he had with his wife, the way that he talked to his children, again, yeah. Would you be merciful to him? And what we might imagine is that that's the scene. Father's on the throne, and there's Jesus sitting at the Father's right hand, and Jesus is pleading our case. Give him another chance. Be merciful to Phil. And then the Father says, okay, we'll give him another chance. If that's your image of Jesus sitting at the Father's right hand, well, then you don't really need to say amen. I mean, it's nice, but it's not gospel. It's not going to transform and change you like this picture would. Father, it's Phil again. <laughs> this time it's his thoughts. The way he's thinking, the way he's criticizing, his pride. There's all kinds of stuff. Father, it's Phil again. But Father, I need to point something out to you. I have already paid for every single one of those sins. And it would be unjust of you. It would be wrong. It would be unrighteous if you demanded payment for those sins. So I'm pleading as his defense attorney. I'm not just begging for your emotions and pity. I'm demanding justice in the name of what I have done on the cross. I have died for his sins. So I'm demanding justice. Set him free. Treat him as righteous in my eyes. Does that sound a little different? Well, then maybe 1 John 1, 9 will make all the more sense to you when it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and, what is it, friends? He is just. He is faithful and he is just. It doesn't say he's faithful and he shows a lot of compassion and pity. Oh, he does. He does show compassion and pity. But he is faithful and he is just. And how does the, the verse finish? He is faithful and just. He will forgive us for our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? What is the basis of his forgiveness? What is the basis of him cleansing you from every one of your failures and miserable mistakes? It is the justice and righteousness of God that if Jesus Christ is always and ever before him, day after day, hour by hour, when you're sleeping, when you're waking, when you're sinning, and when you're worshiping him, all day long, all week long, there he is, always before the Father. The Father can never pour out his wrath or his condemnation or his punishment on you because he already did on Jesus Christ. And if that doesn't transform your heart, your life, your soul, then friend, we want to pray for your soul right now. Because this is the gospel. We need saved again today. 
And so I want to share a little story from John Bunyan. John Bunyan wrote his story of how he became a Christian. And maybe many of you just need to become a Christian all over again. And I mean that in the sense of just a fresh reminder of the amazing mercy of God. And so John Bunyan, in his story of how he became a Christian, this is what he said. One day, I was walking through a field, and then a sentence from the Bible fell upon my soul. My righteousness is in heaven. And then, with the eyes of my soul, I saw Jesus there at the Father's right hand. And then I said, there, there is my righteousness. And that means that whatever I was or whatever I was doing, God could never look at me and say, John, where is your righteousness? For it was always right in front of him. And so now I knew that it was not going to be because of my good works or my good frame of heart that would make me any more righteous than I already was. And at the same time, it was not going to be my bad frame or my bad works that would make my righteousness any worse because my righteousness was Jesus Christ. And then when I realized this, my chains fell off indeed. My temptations fled away and I lived sweetly at peace with God. And what does that look like, John Bunyan? Well, let me tell you. Now I could look from myself to Jesus Christ and I could reckon that all of my character was like the coins of a rich man carrying in his pocket when all of his gold was safe in his trunk at home. Oh, I saw that my gold was indeed a giant trunk treasure chest at home in Jesus Christ, my Lord. Now Christ was my all, my righteousness, my sanctification, and my redemption. Friend, do you believe that? Have you been transformed by the righteousness of Jesus and that it was good for him to leave the earth and be exalted to the right hand of the Father in heaven so that the ever-present courtroom of the judge of the universe would always be able to look down upon your soul and say, not guilty. Your sins are forgiven. No matter how hard you fall, you can stand in the righteousness of Christ. And I want to pray that each of us would not only receive that for ourselves, but that we would pray for other Christian leaders who have fallen big time, that they too would stand in the righteousness of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we come now not on our own merits, but in the name of your son Jesus and by the merits of his blood. We're thankful that he left to send an advocate and to be our advocate to be our defense attorney and to plead our cause. And we pray that the Holy Spirit will now pour into our hearts the truth of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I pray that each one of us would find this glorious truth liberating. That they would find freedom from those shackles of shame and guilt and I pray that that would not only be applied to us, but it would be applied to those around us that have betrayed us and have denied you in the way that they have hurt the body of Christ, hurt us. Lord, we want to pray for Bill Hybels and James McDonald, 
for those that have been pastors and leaders in the church. And we want to ask, we have no idea where their heart is, and we just want to pray, God, would they stand on the righteousness of Jesus? Would they find comfort in the hope of Peter's story and the full restoration that can be found no matter who we are and no matter what we've done? Help us to drink in this pure water of the gospel today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.